This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 41. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, developing deposition testimony of adverse witnesses so that you can call them and lead them during your case in chief. All right, so we think of depositions as the place where we can develop helpful testimony from either friendly or hostile witnesses. And at trial, at least as to witnesses that oppose us, our best case scenario is to be able to use leading questions to examine them. You can, of course, almost automatically use leading questions when you're conducting a true cross-examination of a witness that the other side has called during their case in chief. But there are occasions where you'll want to call adverse or hostile witnesses as part of your case. Unfriendly witnesses often have at least pieces of the puzzle that you need to present to the jury. And if you call an adverse or hostile witness during your case in chief, you'll most certainly want to attack them through the use of leading questions. This episode provides practical guidance in how to conduct deposition examinations of hostile or adverse witnesses so that you can do that, so that you can, without fear, call them in your case in chief at trial and lead them. Let's talk about the rules of evidence on this point. So the federal rules and a supermajority of state rules specifically allow you to call witnesses during your case and use leading questions, in other words, to cross-examine the witnesses if you can show that the witnesses are hostile, if you can show they are an adverse party, or if you can show they are identified with the adverse party. Federal Rule of Evidence uh, 611C2 is the rule that authorizes you to use leading questions when you call an unfriendly witness. Apart from that federal rule, there are 34 or 35 states as of this podcast that have adopted the federal rules of evidence in their entirety and several more states that have adopted this same concept about adverse witnesses generally, even if not written as it's laid out word for word in the federal rules of evidence. So federal rule 611C2 says as follows, ordinarily the court should allow leading questions, subparagraph two, when a party calls a hostile witness, an adverse party, or a witness identified with an adverse party. So the rule makes clear that using leading questions when calling unfriendly witnesses isn't the exception, it's the rule. But I'll tell you something. First, my experience is that some judges are just unfamiliar with this principle. Most are aware of it, but some are not. So you'll find that in some courtrooms, when you begin to lead a witness who you can clearly lead under this rule in your case in chief, your judge may still try to rein you in and tell you to conduct a traditional direct examination because you called the witness. Well, that's just wrong. Second, you may also get leading objections from the opposing counsel. You should never assume that your adversaries are as well-versed as they should be, or perhaps will act as well-versed as they actually are. You've got to have your ammunition ready when this situation arises and you're challenged on it. Or the trial judge may let you lead the witness, but still allow your opponent, to whom the witness is actually friendly, to also use leading questions in what would traditionally be cross-examination. So kind of like, well, I let you do it, so I'm going to let them do it. But again, that's not the rule, and that's not how the concept works. So as I've said before, you've got to be ready for that. Don't let a judge who's unfamiliar with the rule and with the governing cases or an opposing lawyer who's either unfamiliar or who knows better derail your effort to lead hostile or adverse witnesses during your case in chief. In fact, here's a great quote from the ERP case, ERP, 
in the show notes. And we've got tons of citations in the show notes for this episode to get you started when you confront this issue. Anyway, here's what the court said in ERP, quote, a knowledgeable but unwilling, reluctant or recalcitrant witness should always be subject to interrogation by leading questions without regard to who called the witness or as to the witness's status as a party or identity with an adverse party or the possible interest the witness may have in the outcome of the case. Conversely, an obviously willing, forthright and candid witness need not and should not be led without regard to the witness's formal status uh, or interest or whether the witness is being directly examined by the person calling the witness or cross-examined by anyone else. And here's the key final observation. Thus, as Wigmore concludes, the test for permitting or prohibiting leading questions is ultimately and essentially independent of the superficial circumstance as to which party originally put the witness on the stand. Now, in my practice, I frequently call what I refer to as 611C2 witnesses during my case in chief. Sometimes I call all of the opposing parties key witnesses. I did that in my last trial two weeks ago and the jury awarded $75,000 more than I asked them to award. Often these 611C2 witnesses have firsthand knowledge that I must have the jury here as part of my primary case. But I want to be able to lead them. I don't want to put on hostile witnesses uh, during my case in chief and be forced to conduct a cream puff examination. So in my depositions, I am always mindful of the 611C2 standards for establishing that a witness is hostile, is an adverse party, which is pretty obvious, or is simply identified with an adverse party. And I make sure to develop the deposition testimony I need to fit within 611C2 so that when we get close to trial, I can alert the judge uh, to my intention to lead the witness during my direct examination. And think about that just for a moment, because to me, this is one of the amazing benefits about calling and leading 611C2 witnesses. Ordinarily, the order of examination when we call witnesses during our own case is direct, cross, redirect. But if we call 611C2 witnesses in our case, in chief, then the mode of examination is cross, direct, recross. We flip the mode of interrogation and we get to cross the other side's witnesses twice while the witness is on the stand. There's simply no other way in a jury trial to get the opportunity for double cross-examination of a single witness other than through this method. It's one of the best tactical approaches that you're going to have in a jury trial. Okay, so let's take a look at the requirements of the rule. Under Rule 611C2, there are three distinct categories of witnesses. Those who are hostile, those who are the adverse party, and those who are identified with the adverse party, such as a former CEO. All right, in the first group, the term hostile witness means exactly what it says. Apart from associations or connections to the opposing party, you can lead a witness that you call during your case in chief where the witness is obviously and in fact hostile to you. Most of the time, that's going to be an outward showing of actual hostility. In the second group are the adverse parties, and that means exactly what it says as well the opposing party or parties. In the third group, which is where we see most of the battles over whether you can lead a witness or not, 
are the witnesses identified with the adverse party. So these are folks who have or have had meaningful ties to your opponent or opponents. There are all kinds of people that fall into this third category that you might not consider at first blush, but it's critical that you actively think about these folks because you don't want to miss an opportunity to call that person if they're an essential witness for the other side and lead them during your case in chief. Now, before I get into some of the examples from the case law, let me give you an example from one of my own current cases where I took depositions last week. In this particular case, I represent a professor who is suing his university for age discrimination. One of the key witnesses is a former professor. Well, that former professor hasn't been hostile to me or to my client in a specific or overt way, and he's not the opposing party. So my work at this point was to align him with the adverse party to show that he's identified with the university. And so during the course of the deposition, I got the following admissions from that former professor. First, he regularly stays in touch with the administrator who made the adverse decision affecting my client. Second, he acknowledged on the record that when I tried to interview him before his deposition by phone, informally, that he would not speak to me. And instead, he referred me to the university's lawyer with whom he had obviously had multiple contacts. Third, he acknowledged that he was freely cooperating with the university's lawyer and did not make the same demand of her. In other words, he didn't insist that she contact me before he would talk to her. And finally, he testified that when he spoke with her, he asked her to assist or represent him as a witness and that she agreed. Now, those admissions, especially the admission that he sought representation by the university's lawyer and that she agreed to do so, will get me where I need to go under prevailing case law in treating him under that third prong in 611C2 as a witness identified with the adverse party. Otherwise, I really couldn't lead him if I call him during my case in chief if I hadn't been mindful of this opportunity and of the requirements of the rule. Now, different story, and the ability to lead that professor, who's very bright, will change the nature of his examination in the courtroom. All right, let's run through a list of examples of the kinds of inquiries to conduct in depositions of potential 611C2 witnesses. And this list of potential topics focuses chiefly on the second and third subcategories of 611C2, and those are adverse parties and, of course, witnesses identified with an adverse party. And again, it's that third prong where most of the battle will take place. All right, so things to think about or things to ask. Are they cooperating with the adverse party? Does the adverse party have representatives that have reached out to the witness to help them get ready for the deposition? And did the witness accept that assistance voluntarily with the understanding that there was no obligation to talk to the adversary or to work with them? Has the witness refused to speak with you, to cooperate with you in a similar manner, to provide you documents or information? Has the witness asked the opposing party's lawyer to assist them or even to represent them? Did the opposing party's lawyer agree to prepare the witness, assist them in the preparation for the deposition, or represent them in the deposition itself? Did the opposing lawyer provide them documents purportedly for the purpose of refreshing the witness's recollection? And were the documents highly selective? Is the witness a current or former manager, human resource official, officer or director, or other employee who held a substantial 
position within the organization? Is the witness someone who made or participated in the making of a key decision affecting your client? Is the witness someone who witnessed a key event or conversation? Is the witness someone who was the partner or workmate of the person who made the decision or who took the actions in question against your client? Has the witness departed from the adverse party if they were at one point an employee, but continued to play an active role in organizations or activities of the opposing party? Has the witness sought employment with the adverse party or has employment been offered to them by your opponents? Is the witness a contractor for an adverse party or a vendor in any way to an adverse party? Does the witness continue to receive employment related benefits of any kind, including severance payments from the adverse party, even if they are no longer employed? Is the witness operating or burdened by a confidentiality agreement of some kind? Has the witness received any non-monetary benefit from the adverse party? Is the witness a relative of the adverse party, a spouse, a brother, a sister, mother, father, cousin, or former spouse? Is the witness a former defendant or plaintiff in the case? Does the witness have any kind of reciprocal relationship with the adverse party, such as referring business to the adverse party in exchange for being referred business back or being compensated in some other way for those referrals? Does the witness have a relative who's currently employed in a significant position with the adverse party? Has the witness previously given testimony that's inconsistent with what they're saying now, such that it appears they're attempting to favor or tilt in favor of your opponent? And finally, does the witness have an ongoing relationship of any kind with any key witness for the adversary? Okay, so that'll give you a flavor for the kinds of ties or connections you'll want to develop in deposition testimony in order to establish for your court that the witness is identified with the adverse party. Now, this is a powerful tool, but I should say that it's been my sense that when I explore these things in depositions, the reactions of the opposing lawyers is often indifferent. It's sometimes it seems they have no idea that the purpose of this line of examination is specifically allow me to flip the mode of interrogation at trial and to lead that witness. I rarely get any objections to these kinds of questions, and not that I should have, but it tells me that sometimes the lawyers seem like they just don't understand what the purpose of these questions are. And on that note, I should also add that I rarely see follow-up examination by an opposing lawyer when I'm done with this kind of inquiry. And that also suggests to me that maybe the lawyers don't understand what the purpose of the line of questions is, because if they did, maybe they would try to counter my examination to show that the witness is not in fact identified with an adverse party. All right, now a couple of other tips and then we can wrap things up. Uh, first, I suggest strongly that you either address this with the court in advance before the trial through a motion or other pretrial filing. So the court has some time to rule on it and so that no one is surprised. But if you're not inclined to do that, and there have been occasions where I've just opted not to alert the court or the other side in advance, I recommend that you have what I call a pocket memo ready just something that's two or three pages long, might be single spaced, but that contains heavy citation to the appropriate case law. I just cover the basic points, but I footnote it like a law review article with supporting cases. 
Then when it becomes an issue in the middle of trial, I have something short and to the point that I can pull out, provide to the judge and opposing counsel and get the ruling that I need. And if it's short enough, most of the judges will stop right then, review the authorities and make the ruling on the spot. And if you decide to put together what I call these pocket memos, when I usually will carry four or five or six, whatever the key issues that I expect to pop up during the trial, I usually have a series of very, very short memos that are case law intensive. Uh, if you decide to do one uh, on this particular issue, the issue of 611C2 witnesses, you might want to start out with that quote I read earlier from Wigmore, which I love. It's a great way to start your memo because Wigmore is such a heavyweight in the field of evidence and because it so succinctly makes the point. Here's the quote that I mentioned earlier. Thus, as Wigmore concludes, the test for permitting or prohibiting leading questions is ultimately and essentially independent of the superficial circumstance as to which party originally put the witness on the stand. So you have Wigmore himself saying, in effect, it doesn't matter who put that witness in the chair. What matters is, who is that witness clearly aligned with? That is what drives the mode of interrogation. So pretty powerful quote from a very powerful authority on evidence. Now, if your first thought is, who the heck is Wigmore? I have two things to say to you. First, shame on you. And second, shame on you but I know you know who he is. Final point, remember again, and you've got to drill this point home with the judge. The opposing party does not get to use leading questions when quote unquote cross-examining their own friendly witness that you put on the stand during your case in chief. That's not how it works. You've got to make sure you have the case law in your memo to let the judge know that calling a hostile witness or someone who's identified with an adverse party in your case in chief means that you get to lead and it means that the adverse party does not. I mentioned earlier that some judges seem unfamiliar with this principle, even though the rules have been around for a long time. But my experience is that once you educate a specific judge on this point, you'll never have to do it again. They get it very quickly. Here's another thought. I just don't think there are a lot of trial lawyers that take advantage, full advantage of 611C2 and its state equivalents. I just don't see a lot of lawyers conducting examinations crafted specifically for flipping the mode of interrogation. I don't see that very often in depositions. So don't be shy about calling adverse witnesses in your case in chief. You can make tremendous progress by having the opportunity to cross-examine that witness through leading questions first and last. You know, I have some great colleagues in the legal profession who tell me they would never call an adverse witness in their own case simply because they're not going to let the adverse witness, quote unquote, hijack their case. But I've never had that happen in 35 years of practice. If you do your homework, you can really sock it to an adverse witness through the cross, direct cross mode of examination that 611C2 allows. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. And if you don't mind, and in exchange for these free episodes that require tremendous time and resources and research to put together, please do take 30 seconds, navigate to wherever you get your podcast and leave us a five-star rating. The staff absolutely loves it when they see a new rating. And many of you have been very kind to do that already. It's a great way to say thank you. And one last point, don't forget to check out the show notes in this and in every episode. That's where we generally park the research uh, for your use in getting started on the issues covered in a given episode. So we normally include the full case citations and some useful parentheticals to help get you started. All right, good enough. Have a great day.